Hello, and welcome to the Verse Verse Podcast. My name is Justin Thomas, and I'm really excited for our journey from Genesis to Revelation a couple of chapters a week. My goal is that you would grow in your ability to understand the story that the Bible tells as a whole, as well as your ability to read the Bible for yourself. I would love to connect with you on social media. You can find us at verse slash verse, all spelled out, on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks again for tuning in. The transition between 1 Kings and 2 Kings is basically seamless. Things pick up right where we left them. But I want you to notice that verse 1 as we begin mentions something and then just leaves it alone. And so it says here in chapter 1, verse 1, After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now we're not going to hear about Moab again until chapter 3. But as we've seen is often the case, the narrators of Hebrew literature spin a story out to its final conclusions and then double back and catch us up to speed. And so we've been following the end of the rule of Ahab, and that's where chapter 1, verse 1 picks up with the death of Ahab. Uh, But we have been told that judgment is coming on not just Ahab, but his household, that the line that begins with Omri, Ahab's father, is going to end. In fact, we even saw at the very end of 1 Kings a little bit of foreshadowing. So notice what it says in verse 51 in the last chapter there of 1 Kings. As Isaiah, son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned two years over Israel. That's all. We know that this is coming. And so here, we're set up for Moab being a significant part in that, but we have an unfollowed thread that we need to catch up to speed. This next part of the story, in fact, 2 Kings in general, extensively deals with the ministry of Elisha the disciple of Elijah. But last time we saw them, Elisha was just getting started and he's going to be a primary player in this battle with Moab. We need to double back. And notice verse 2 begins with what will be the end of the life of Ahaziah. He only reigns for two years. Here we find out why. Verse 2, Ahaziah fell through the lattice in the upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. So, what happens here is the king of Israel, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah, falls out a window, basically, a second story window. And the break is bad enough uh, that he's not sure he's going to recover. Now, here we kind of pull back the curtain and we see where Ahaziah is at We already know because of 1 Kings that he followed in the footsteps of his father. And here we see that in action because in order to discover if he will live or die, he goes to inquire of Ekron, that's a Philistine city, of Baal in one of his titles. You see, uh, the gods in the ancient Near East were not just worshipped, but they were worshipped in specific orientations in specific places. Now the name here, Baal-zebub, most commentators believe is actually a Jewish interpolation because Baal-zebel would be our prince Baal. 
But Beelzebub is the lord of the, f- of the flies, okay? Interestingly enough, it's also the name Pharisees use to criticize Jesus' exorcism ministry, saying he does so by the power of Beelzebub. And so it becomes kind of this personification of the devil himself. But most likely here, this title has been twisted by our author, as we've seen with Mephibosheth and a few other places where divine names for other gods are twisted uh, into being critiques of the gods. But nonetheless here, as Ahaziah is following in his father's footsteps in the worship of Baal, and so he sends to inquire of the temple of Baal in Ekron to see if he will live. But, verse 3, the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? And so notice here, as they're on their way, God speaks to Elijah and sends him to intercept them. Okay, um, I would imagine, and this is speculation, but based on the way uh, royalty has functioned throughout history, the sickness, the illness, the physical problems that Ahaziah is going on, has going on right now are probably being kept quiet. Okay, Because they're a threat to his rule. He's in a place of weakness. You know, we can imagine uh, now, I don't think we've had this happen in a long time, but imagine what it would do to the stock market if our president suddenly was terribly ill, right? Those types of shifts and changes can be very problematic. And so second here, of course, Ahaziah doesn't go looking for Elijah's input on this. But God directly interferes and heads off the messengers on their way to Ekron. And so... um, He says, go and ask them this question. Why are you going this long distance? Is there no God of Israel that you can inquire of? Right? He's directly challenging this continued devotion to the wrong God here. And then he adds, verse 4, Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And so he says, no, you're not going to survive this. And I want you to read that as what it is. It's both a fulfillment of judgment on the family of Ahab, and it's also a get your house in order, don't expect to recover from this act of patience. Effectively here, Ahaziah gets a warning that he has very little time. You know, in that sense, it's a gift. But of course, here, it's also a confrontation. So, verse 5, the messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, why have you returned? And why does he even ask that question? It's because Ekron is 70 kilometers away, and it's been 15 minutes, and here they are back already, right? He knows that they haven't arrived yet, so he says, what are you doing here? Verse 6, they said to him, there came a man to meet us, and and he said to us, go back to the king who sent you, and say to him, thus says the Lord. Is it because there's no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from your bed, of which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Now, we just read that, didn't we? We need to remember here that the um, Hebrew narratives often engage in repetition to make a point. Okay? And the point clearly here is we've got a contrast again uh, with the word of the Lord and the you know, potential appeals to Baal. And so here the king hears it for himself in verse 7. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? 
Now, most likely here, he's not vetting the likelihood of what's about to happen, but he has a sneaking suspicion. He knows who's involved, okay? And so he asks here, who told you this? Verse 8, they answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist, and he said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50, okay? And so his response to this is, okay, now that I've identified who he is, I'm going to send 50 armed soldiers with their captain out to get him. And I think that number is uh, significant, not, not in the numerology sense, but it's significant in the sense this is a sizable force to arrest an old man, is it not? The point is here that this captain and his men are showing up hostily. Okay, the intentions here is that the king is, at the very least, going to make Elijah feel it for being such a thorn in his side, or maybe even more so that he is going to flex his muscles and use his power to get Elijah to reverse his sentence. Okay? And so notice how the commander addressed Elijah, who's sitting on top of a hill. Verse 9, the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah was sitting on the top of a hill, and he said, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of the 50, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And the fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. And so the way he responds here is, okay, you title me a man of God, but I don't think you really know what that means. Okay, If that's who I am, then let your army and yourself be consumed with fire, and that's what happens. And then it happens again, verse 11. The king sent to him another captain of 50 men with his 50. And he answered and said to them, O man of God, this is the king's order. You see the escalation of the language there? The first time it's just the king says, now the king commands you to come down. Okay. Come down quickly even. But Elijah answered them, If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent a captain of a third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of the fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. You see the difference here of the way his understanding reflects the definition of man of God? With the others, it was just a title. In fact, to some degree, it was an accusation, right? It was a criminal charge. Uh, for this man, he understands the authority structure, how these things work, and he approaches recognizing that he, this soldier, this commander, is at the beck and call of the king and therefore in a difficult place. He needs to fulfill his master's orders, but that also puts his life at risk. And so he comes, and he comes not just respectfully, but healing that uh, the prophet would see their lives as precious. He explains why. Verse 14, Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed two former captains of fifty men with their fifties, but now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him, do not be afraid of him. And so notice, when the king says, Elijah doesn't listen, but when the Lord speaks to him, he responds, uh, and so he arose and went down with him to the king. And then he said to him, thus says the Lord, 
because you've sent messengers to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there's no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from your bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And so basically, he delivers the same message here. It hasn't changed after, uh, you know, the king has flexed his military muscles, but it also tells us here that this death now is guaranteed because of the action he has taken. Because you appealed to Baal and not to me, effectively, is what Elijah says. Uh, You will surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Now there's an occasion in the Gospel of Luke where the disciples, thinking of this story, have a conversation with Jesus. Uh, It happens in Luke chapter 9. And you should know that at this point in Luke's Gospel, it's fresh off, uh, fresh following Jesus's transfiguration. In fact, his transfiguration appearing with Elijah himself and Moses, you know, um, shining like a light before them. It's Jesus's revelation that he really is the Christ. He identifies himself, finally says, yes, that's who I am. All of this has just happened. And so what happens here in chapter 9, verse 54 As Jesus is moving along in verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Clearly here, they're thinking of the story that we just read. In fact, some manuscripts add, as Elijah did. Uh, Those manuscripts aren't as old and they aren't as uh, reliable as the newer and few manuscripts that do mention that. And it makes sense, doesn't it, uh, that a scribe would have added that in the margin. Hey, this is just like Elijah, and it slowly drifted into the text. Uh, But either way here, that's clearly what they're thinking of. They think, oh, this this town has disrespected you. Let's do like Elijah did. Let's bring about judgment and have them be consumed with fire. But verse 55, he turned and rebuked them. Uh, Now, you may have an extra sentence there. It has the same manuscript issue that I mentioned. It's in some newer manuscripts, but our oldest and best manuscripts don't have it, uh, where he basically says, do you even know what spirit you are of? I didn't come to destroy, but to save. But even if those aren't the actual words of Jesus, and I think they're probably not, it is dead on with, uh, dead on with the sentiment of Jesus' rebuke here. You see, we need to understand uh, the difference in age here. And side note, let's remember that Elijah here is dealing with the people of Israel, the witnessing the works of God, familiar with the covenant, heritage in the exodus people of Israel, okay? Not your average, distant, unknowing pagan, okay? But more importantly here, Jesus rebukes his disciples because they're off base. They don't understand the difference in Jesus's ministry. Now, Peter himself, one of the disciples, does come to understand this. And so for us as Christians to see the shift in mentality here, it's helpful to read out of Second Peter, Peter here, one of Jesus' disciples, he's talking about the age that we find ourselves in as Christians, the age that Peter was alive in, the age that we're still alive in today. 2 Peter chapter 3, 
He says this in verse 7. But by the same word, that's the word that led to the flood in the context. By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Okay, so Peter looks forward and he sees judgment. He sees fire. Verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done will be exposed. In other words, he says we're currently existing in a time of God's patience. Okay. And so the period that inaugurates with Jesus is a time of invitation. As Peter mentions the flood there, that works pretty well as an illustration there is a time when the floods have not yet come, when the doors to the ark remain open, when the invitation is standing. So our ministry then is not one of judgment, even of those who seek our harm. Consider, if you will, with me, the ministry of Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot was a missionary to the Aka in, uh, Indians, a completely uncontacted people group. And he and two of his friends were actually killed by the Aka Indians during their beginning initial contacts. Now, the story doesn't end there. His wife and the wives of these other men end up continuing that ministry and seeing many of them come to the Lord. Uh, But their life was taken at their hand, and that's a surprising thing because they had flown their prop plane near to the village and landed, and in the plane was Jim's gun, fully loaded. Okay. Now remember, this is an uncontacted people group. In terms of technology, a gun should have provided plenty of safety. But Jim had told, according to his journals, the other men in his group that they would not use that gun against the Aka Indians because they, Jim and his friends, had nothing to lose in life knowing Jesus. And the Aka Indians had everything to lose in their death. Okay. Think with me as well of the the martyrs throughout Christian history, you know, those who have died publicly and willingly for their belief at the hands of their enemies, oftentimes, like Jesus, with prayers on their lips for the same people who lit the fires, okay? That is a significant aspect of Jesus's ministry, like we talked about this morning. All of us enter into a relationship with Jesus at the cost that he has paid and we have not. And that means not only can we not elevate ourselves against uh, those who we would count as enemies, but we also have tremendous hope that if God can save us, they can save them as well. But Elijah, and especially Elisha, uh, live in the context of a time of judgment at the end of lots and lots of patience. Remember, Ahaziah has grown up in the house of Ahab. He has seen this path before. He has known both what this life looks like and where it leads. Okay, and that needs to be seen in this context. And so here, once again, I think we should see even this sentencing here that Elijah says, because you were going to go to Baal, you will surely die for what it is. 
a clear line in the sand, final opportunity to set things right. And I want to remind you again that that's an amazing gift that many human beings don't get. We're not guaranteed tomorrow, and very few of us get our death date scheduled on a calendar, uh, as Ahaziah does here. And so I would suggest to you that even here we see God's gracious patience with this wicked king. But, verse 17, he died according to the word that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat. Now, once again, we have place for confusion here. Uh, In fact, that's not the only place. Jehoshaphat is also going to have a descendant named Ahaziah on the throne, and they're all right here, okay? Your text may say Joram here, uh, and that we're pretty sure, once again, that spelling is to try and help us maintain the distinction. So Joram from Ahab's line and Jehoshaphat's Jehoram, but they're really the same name, okay? But nonetheless here, remember, these two families have married into one another, uh, formed a treaty, and so there's some similar naming going on, you know, like Daryl and his other brother, Daryl. But here, we have to ask ourselves an obvious question, okay? Ahab dies, his son Ahaziah takes over, Ahaziah dies, he doesn't have, have any sons, so who is Joram, right? Who is this guy? If you look around and you study, he is another son of Ahab, okay? And this is the first place where we see delay in the inevitable, What we're looking towards is the end of the house of Ahab, and we thought we just had it. We didn't. There's another son. And so he takes the throne. His name is Joram. Okay. And this happens at the same time uh, in the second year of Jehoshaphat's son, Joram, taking the throne. Verse 18, now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the King of Israel? They probably are, and it's probably a page long because it's just a two-year reign. Okay. So, chapter 2, verse 1. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Now, I want you to notice that this chapter opens, assuming the audience already knows the story. Did you catch that? He's spoiled the most exciting part of what we're about to read. He says, now, right before Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind, And then he lays out the context, okay? In other words, our narrator here knows that his audience is familiar with the ministry of Elisha and Elijah, and he's setting up for the story, for the transition, uh, and he says that it involves basically a farewell tour, okay? We're going to see it involves a couple of locations, and every one of the locations involves a school of prophets, Now, in 2 Kings, these schools of prophets are going to be a significant part of the story, a significant part of Elijah's ministry. He oversees a group of people who identify themselves as prophets, a school of prophets, but it begins in the ministry of Elisha. And I actually find that really encouraging because it was just a while ago before he'd taken his first disciple, Elisha, that he was discouraged that he was the last living remnant of faithful Israel, right? But now here, through his discipleship, he's raised up not just people uh, who know the living God, but people who are committed to being his mouthpiece, committed to uh, teaching the ways of the God of Israel. And so here, 
he's basically saying goodbye to his students place by place. And so they're on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. And so basically Elijah says, hey, why don't you stay put? I'm going to go a little bit further. I'm going to go to Bethel, but you can stay here. And notice how Elijah responds, as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will not leave you. I have a friend whose instinct uh, when she goes into labor is isolation. The very first time she was pregnant and she realized she was about to have her kid, she sent her husband to the store for groceries. No, no hospital, no ambulance, no nothing. That's just her instinct is to get away. And that's almost what it feels like with Elijah here. He knows what's about to go down and he makes uh, consistent remarks to Elijah trying to get him to stay behind. And I don't really know why that is. I don't think it's this isolationist instinct. It may be in the form of a final test. Because as we're going to see, Elisha wants something. He looks at the future, a future without Elijah, and he knows that there's a need there, and he wants to be part of meeting it, and actually him being present with this whole thing is going to be a significant part of that story. And so it may be here that there's just a test of commitment. In fact, listen again to how Elijah responds. He says, as the Lord lives, that's a vow. And he says, and as long as you live, I'm not leaving you alone. I'm going to be here for the whole ride. And so they went down to Bethel. Verse 3, and the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know today that the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. And so those who are part of this school of prophets in Bethel come forward and they go, man, the Lord's told us this is Elijah's last day. Did you know that? He says, I do. Shut up, right? And so, verse 4, Elijah said to him, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elijah and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. And so the same thing happens at the next place, okay? There's a full confirmation of what's about to go down. All of the prophets at all of the schools know that this is about to be the end of Elijah's ministry. In fact, notice what happens here in verse 6. Elijah said, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. Now the Jordan is not a city, right? It's a river. The Lord has sent me to the edge of the land of Israel, the Jordan River, okay? Uh, but he said, as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophet also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Okay, from Jericho. Remember the book of Joshua geography, right? That's right next to the River Jordan. And so they walk a long distance and the prophets from the school in Jericho follow them out of the city and they're standing seeing these two men at the Jordan River off in a distance, okay? They're there as witnesses for what's about to go down. Uh, but only Elisha is going to have a front row seat. Verse eight, then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water and the water was parted to one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. Okay, so he takes off his outer garment and he rolls it up and he slaps the river and just like the Red Sea did in the book of Exodus, it parts and they cross the river on dry ground. Okay, and so catch the setting here again. Okay, 
They're out in the wilderness, away from the city. They're now across this natural divide, and this school of prophets at a distance has just seen them cross the river miraculously. Okay, uh, And then, verse 9, when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I'm taken from you. And Elijah said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Okay, and so... He goes, all right, you've been with me the whole time. What is it that you want? He says, I want a double portion. Now, I think when we read that in a modern setting, it sounds like a one-up. I want to be twice the man you were, okay? But he's speaking here in Jewish inheritance language. The double portion was the portion that was given to the firstborn. It's not twice what the father has to give. It's two times larger than anyone else. It's the largest portion of the inheritance, right? And so if, if you had a brother and your father divided it between you and you were the oldest, you got the double portion, you'd have two-thirds of the inheritance. If like, uh, if like Judah and his family, you know, the sons of Jacob, you had 12 brothers, then it would be two-twenty-fourths of the inheritance, that's not right. That's not even close. It'd be two-thirteenths, there we go, of the inheritance, and everybody else would get, okay? And so what he's saying here is not that he wants to be greater than ever. He's saying, I want to be your successor. I want to step into the family business. I want to take over your role. I want to continue your ministry, okay? Now, remember, Elijah knows that's what's supposed to happen. Elisha may not, but God told Elijah directly, I have a plan. It involves you appointing three people, your successor, Elisha, these, uh, Jehu, and this king, right? These three men are going to be how things are carried out. Um, but here we find that through uh, you know, the training and the ministry and the close quarters here, that's, that's where Elisha's heart is. He wants to be Elijah's successor. Um, but I want you to notice, when he says double portion here, he makes it explicit. Double portion of what? Of your spirit. Okay. He knows, effectively, that what he needs for his calling, he doesn't have. He needs what God has given Elijah. He needs the spirit of God to work in and through him in a significant way. Okay. And so this is what he asks for. Now, verse 10, he said, you've asked a hard thing. Now, I think it's worth pointing out there uh, the significance of what that is. We need to understand that the ministry of Elijah is incredibly unique. Okay? There's lots of prophets in the Old Testament. There's 50 of them sitting across the river. They do not have what Elijah has. Their ministry isn't the way Elijah's ministry has been done. There are prophets who write significant parts of our Old Testament. There's the prophet Agabus in the New Testament who rightly predicts both the arrest of Paul and the coming of a famine. They do not have what we're talking about here with Elijah, right? His ministry is unique. One thing that we can't do as Christians or as believers in the God of the Bible is identify with Elijah's ministry as if this is normal and normative, right? He is... Uh, serving a significant purpose at a particular period of time. But nonetheless, he says here, you ask a hard thing, but, he says, if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it shall be so for you, but if you do not be me, uh, see me, it shall not be so. He says, if you, if you actually see what's about to happen, take that as evidence that God has granted your prayer. Okay, And so... Verse 11, they still went on and talked. 
I don't know why, but I love those two little words there. They still went on and talked, right? These are the sweet and final moments of a master and a disciple, knowing at any minute he's going to be away. Who knows what they talked about? But Elisha did. He probably remembered the rest of his life. But as they were talking, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. It's a little bit snooty here, but I want you to notice exactly what goes down, okay? It is not that a chariot of fire swings down, swings low, if you will, uh, and Elijah just hops in and travels off. What it actually says here in the Hebrew is that suddenly, uh, you know, this cav- cavalry rushes between them of fire, okay? Horses and chariots together, and they're suddenly separated. There's a distance. And while this is happening, like being cut off by a passing train, right, with one on the side and one on the other, a whirlwind comes and takes Elijah away, okay? Uh, That's what happens here. And so Elisha does see this go down. Uh, And so he says in verse 12, he saw it and he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Now, he's probably not there saying, I've seen chariots and horse. He, he calls out here to the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Most likely he's talking about Elijah. Okay? He's saying, you, you were the armies of Israel. You were the strength of Israel. You were the power of Israel, and now you're gone. Right? And he saw him no more. Now, Elisha marks <coughs> the pages of Scripture as being unique only on par with one other biblical character, which is Enoch in the book of Genesis, uh, who don't have usual death experiences, but are just taken. That's the same language that Genesis uses. In Genesis, it says, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Okay. Uh, The word that um, Bible teachers sometimes use is translated, uh, but I don't find that to be relatively clear on what it means, but that's because we really don't know what it means, okay? Um, But nonetheless, what happens here, just like the ministry of Elijah, the close of it is is unique. And so notice here, uh, the tail end of verse 12, Elisha took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. Now, if we read that just right off the bat, we could take it as a sign of grief. You know, tearing your clothes was an expression of mourning. Um, But here it doesn't say that he tore them. It says that he tore them in half, okay? And it seems most likely because he's just about to inherit the mantle, right? That's where we get the expression of Elisha, that what is really going down here is a transition, okay? With a change of clothes becomes a transition into the ministry of his master. And so he sets aside his old clothes and with it who he was. Verse 13, he took up the cloak of (coughs) Elisha. Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Now this is actually kind of a funny predicament. Depending on the time of the year, crossing the Jordan River at this place near Jericho would either be a tremendous hassle or completely impossible, okay, depending on how flooded the river is. Uh, It's not an easy river to cross. He had, uh, you know, a higher security clearance on the way in going with Elijah and now he's stuck on the wrong side of the river. Okay. But he has the promise of God and he has the mantle of Elisha. Uh, and he's seen how this works. And so, verse 14, he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water saying, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And so notice there, 
He knows it's not the cloak. He knows it's not the man. It's the God of Elijah. That's who he needs to operate. And so he calls on God, and God answers here in the same way that he did with Elijah when he had struck the water. The water was parted to one side and the other, and Elijah went over. Okay, so now Elijah knows that he knows, but that's not all. Because remember, he has an audience, right? We don't know very much about these schools of the prophets, except for the fact that they were in different places, uh, that at least this one had 50 people, uh, and that Elijah was their leader, okay? Uh, we don't know if there was any other hierarchy or, or how it went or, or anything. Um, but here, they have an eyewitness evidence of this transition. They've all known it was coming. God had spoken apparently to many of them and said, Elisha's last day on earth is today. They see Elisha and Elijah cross the river and only Elisha comes back and he does it in the same way. Taking on the mantle of his master, striking the river, walking across on dry ground. So verse 15. When the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. They know what it means. They understand the significance. Okay. And so now the ministry has effectively transitioned. It's passed from one hand to the other. But since this is also the close of the life of Elijah, uh, let's just pause for a second. And I think there's a few different ways to think about Elijah. First, we should see that his ministry runs very parallel to Moses. In fact, in the Transfiguration, it's Jesus, Moses, and Elijah who are speaking together. Okay? Uh, but also, in the same way that Moses' ministry transitions to Joshua, so also Elijah transitions to Elisha. And those transitions are normal. I know your boss at work has probably gone through a similar transition. The reason why it matters here is because God sets up a work, and he starts with one, but he calls him to hand off to the other. Right? And so God has told Elijah that his ministry isn't going to finish with his life. It will finish with the life of Elisha. Okay? In fact, Elisha and Joshua are basically the same name. One using the name for God that's more broad in general, El, God saves. And then Joshua, the Lord, Je Jehovah saves. Okay? And so their names are very similar. Um, like Moses... We're going to see here this school of prophets goes looking for the body of Elijah and can't find it. Remember the end of Deuteronomy says that God personally buried Moses and nobody knows where. Okay, uh, like, uh, like Moses begins this time with Israel, so Elijah begins the time of the prophets. This school of the prophets leads to the ministry to Israel for the rest of this duration. But also, when we think of Elijah, we should think of the New Testament person of John the Baptist. Okay? And the reason we do so is, like Elijah is a forerunner of Elisha, right? He's just setting up the pieces. So John operates in the New Testament, and he does so prophetically. Okay? Uh, turn with me really quickly to the book of Malachi. Malachi is one of the last prophets to speak in the days of the Old Testament. And so it's much after the ministry of Elijah. Um, and there's not much after the ministry of Malachi in the Old Testament. Okay, it's, that's why it's a fitting close uh, of our Bible. 
But as he looks forward to what God is going to do in Israel, he says in chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Okay? That's one half of the language that John uses to self-identify himself. You remember when the Pharisees come out and they go, Who do you say that you are? He says, I'm the messenger who prepares the way before, and then he draws from Isaiah as well, who makes his path straight, right? But also, notice what it says in the next chapter here, in chapter 4, verse 5, at the very end of the book. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, this expectation from Malachi that before God did his next great work, Elijah the prophet would come, was so significant in the mind of Israel that when Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? They give multiple answers, right? Well, some say you're the prophet. Some say you're Jeremiah. And then one of them they say is, and some say you're Elijah. Why? Because Malachi said we should be looking for Elijah. Okay. Um, But Jesus actually tells us Uh, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11, uh, that that is John's role. Jesus identifies John as being the Elijah that Malachi said is to come. Chapter 11 here, in verse 11, Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen nobody greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the king of he- kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. Okay. And so basically he says here, in the same way that Elijah takes this precedent as the first prophet, John takes it as the last. As, as I often say, even as we've been going through this, every other prophet somewhere in their message says he's coming. He's coming. John is the one who gets to say he's here, right? That's part of the greatness of his role. He gets to see with his eyes and proclaim with his mouth the arrival of the promises of God in Jesus, okay? But notice what he says in verse 14. If you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. And so he says, in a significant way, he is Elijah. Now, if you read your Gospels closely, there's another place where people ask John and they go, are you Elijah? And he says, no. Jesus here answers in such a cryptic way, doesn't he? He says he is if you want him to be. What does that mean? Why does he say that? You see, one of the things you have to understand about the coming of the day of the Lord in the Old Testament that we encountered in the book of Malachi is that when we get to the days of Jesus, we discover that that day is bifurcated, right? That Jesus has come, but he's also coming. Jesus came the first time, and he comes Uh, as a minister of reconciliation, to die for sins, to offer peace, to to inaugurate that time of God's patience. But the next time he comes, he comes to bring judgment. This is why many people believe that when we get to the two prophets we find in the book of Revelation, in the last days on earth leading up to the return of Jesus, uh, and suddenly one of them is a, a divine pyro, like Elijah was, calling down fire from heaven, they go, hmm, maybe that's the other Elijah, and maybe it's just another person standing in like John did, who's Elijah-esque. Or maybe, since Elijah never died, 
and it's appointed for all men to die, and then the judgment, maybe he's basically being stowed on ice, forgive me the illustration, uh, until God needs him, okay? Uh, which is why some people believe the other prophet, who happens to be, a, honestly, Moses-esque, okay? His, his forte, prophetically, is plagues, okay? Um, but some believe maybe it's Enoch, Right? The prophet all the way back from the beginning that Jude tells us was a prophet who prophesied of judgment coming in the flood. Right, That guy. Maybe it's him who also did not die but is being preserved for this later time. That's why I suggest to you that Jesus says you can take the Elijah you choose but in doing so you take the Jesus you choose. The Jesus who comes offering salvation freely and willingly at his own cost, or the one who Paul says who has been appointed to judge the living and the dead. So, Elijah is a significant character and becomes uh, a linchpin that reaches back in time and connects us with the beginning of Israel under the leadership of Moses and forward to the coming of Jesus. Okay. Uh, and uh, here we get the transition to his ministry. Now notice this in verse, uh, verse 15 again. When the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him, and they bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, behold, now there are with your servants 50 strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, you shall not send. Now, <coughs> Elijah does have this reputation of potentially being carried away by the Spirit to another place. Remember, that was the concern of one of the king's servants who came. And he's like, I'm right here. I'm staying right here. And he's like, forgive me for saying so, but you have a tendency to disappear. So would you do me the favor of just coming with me directly to the king, Right? It makes us think of um, Acts chapter 8, when Philip is ministering to the Ethiopian eunuch, leads him to Jesus, gets out of the chariot, baptizes him, and then suddenly is caught up and finds himself in a city miles away. Okay? But more likely here, they're not looking for Elijah in case he's alive. They're looking for his body. Right? They were all expecting this to be the last day. But as we would want the body of a loved one for our own mourning, uh, because the Jewish standard practice of burial is a significant one, one that's bound up in the promises that God has given Israel. Remember, even when Joseph dies in Egypt and Jacob before him, they say, hold on to our bodies, right? They take advantage of the Egyptian technology um, <coughs> to mummify them so that when they get to Israel, they can be buried there, okay? It's a significant thing. Um, that's probably what they're after. They all saw the whirlwind. They're just wondering if he was just thrown a great distance and can be recovered, okay? Um, but Elijah says, no, verse 17, when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, send. And they sent, therefore, 50 men. In three days they sought him, but they did not find him. And they came back to him while they were staying at Jericho, and he said to them, did I not say, don't go? Basically, he said, look, I tried to tell you what just happened there's no remnants of, there's no, that's not what went down, right? And so now they know from their own um, investigation. Verse 19, now the men of the city said to Elisha, behold, the situation of the city is pleasant, as my, <coughs> excuse me, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. 
Okay, so remember, they're in Jericho, and they, they say, look, this is a beautiful place we've settled in, but there's something wrong with the water, and it's causing all of the crops to be bad. Um, and when it says unfruitful there, it means that it's miscarrying, and that's probably the land, but it might be the women or the livestock, because it, it's, it's the only time we encounter this word being used of plants, okay, miscarrying. Um, but either way, the water is toxic, and so it's making it impossible to live there. And so verse 20, Elisha said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him, and he went to the spring of water, and he threw it in, and he said, thus says the Lord, I've healed this water from now on, neither death nor miscarriages, there's that word again, shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elijah spoke, okay? And so here the citizens of Jericho come and they go, we've got this problem. They recognize that Elijah is now uh, Elijah's replacement and he handles it. And it has the same marks that we always see, a mystifyingly symbolic action, not just a bowl, but a brand new bowl, a never used bowl filled with salt, okay? Uh, but it's not that that purifies it, but the word of the Lord that goes alongside it, okay? But once again, we have evidence of Elijah's authority in his ministry. Now, that's in contrast, okay? So some come to Elijah with a need, and they find what they want. And then in verse 23, he went up from there to Bethel. Now, remember, Bethel is another place where there's a school of the prophets. He's retracing that farewell tour he took with his master. So he started in Jericho, now he goes back to Bethel. But the other thing you need to remember about Bethel is that is one of the two places where these bronze calves are set up, the, excuse me, the golden calves are set up for Israel to worship. This is idolatry headquarters in Israel, okay? And so while he's there, while he was going on the way, on the way to Bethel, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. Now, this is an incredibly intense story. Um, and there are some clarifications we should make. Despite the fact that the language there of small boys is a literal translation the way that it's used, the people it identifies in scripture, uh, most scholars believe we're talking from 12 to 30, okay? So don't thinking about, you know, prancing five-year-olds. That's not what we're talking about. This is, in fact, the same language that Solomon uses of himself in his 30s when he stands before God and says, I'd like you to give me wisdom because I'm just a small boy, okay? Now, he might be being hyperbolic, there, but it also may be a totally appropriate recognition that you're not yet 30, okay? Even in the days of Jesus, 30 is when you step out from your father's apprenticeship, apprenticeship and start your own business, okay? It's a significant transition. This refers to the age before that, okay? So most likely these are, these are young men, okay? Second here, when it says go up your bald head, there's two options, okay? Either Elijah just has a hair problem, Okay. And so they're just making fun of the fact that he's bald. Or it may be that, um, <coughs> that this baldness is self-induced and has to do with being part of the school of the prophets. Okay. Like the monasteries that involve a tonsure, right? When they cut their hair, 
It, and it's literally just a shameful haircut. Do you guys understand that? That's what a tonsor, tonsor is supposed to be. It's to strike at your vanity by giving you just the world's ugliest haircut. And so you shave from here up, completely bald, and you grow long right here, okay? Um, it may be that this is um, an insult phrase for the prophets as a whole, okay? Now, Understanding those things doesn't remove the severity of this reality. And I want to add one more thing here. That Elijah's response is to curse them in the name of the Lord and not to physically wreak havoc on them, right? Okay. These bears that come out are clearly an act of judgment, but not Elijah's act of judgment, God's. And that's the thing is, when, when we get uncomfortable with the judgment we find in the Bible and stories like this, eventually we're going to have to connect that with our understanding of God. You push back far enough, behind every layer, behind every veil, eventually you're going to get back to the fact uh, we're going to have to deal with God. Okay. Um, now, <clears throat> the second thing we need to understand is in context, this is directly following, directly related to, laid right aside what we just saw, okay? So Jericho, historically not a likely place to find faithful believers, comes to this brand new prophet with a need, and it's instantly met, okay? And here they come in criticism and rebuke and mocking, and that reaps judgment. And like I said, this is Bethel, okay? And so wherever these young men come from, they're probably well acquainted with and fully engaging in the idolatrous cult that was set up by King Jeroboam years and years and years ago. Okay. There's another thing we need to add here. You cannot understand Elijah's ministry without recognizing that it is a ministry of judgment. That's what he's here for, to finish the work that Elijah started. In fact, go back to 1 Kings 19. Remember here, Elisha has been on the run because he feels like the work's not done yet and he's the only faithful. And so if he dies, it's all over, right? That's his concern. And notice what God tells him in verse 15. The Lord said, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king of Syria and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elijah, the son of Shaphat of Almanoah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. Listen to this, verse 17. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Okay. His ministry was to be the fulfillment of the judgment that was coming on Ahab's palace. Ahab's family, and the people of Ahab, because they had wholeheartedly gone after Baal, okay? And so we need to read this story uh, in that context as the first fruits of that. Now, I know that may not, uh, may not carry you further, because some of us uh, have come to a place where we're just uncomfortable with God's judgment at all. C.S. Lewis wrote a book of apologetic essays uh, that he titled, God in the Dock, and he says in the preface, uh, a, a dock is a reference to uh, the person who's on trial in the courtroom. That's where they sit. They sit in the dock. And he says that uh, cultures preceding the modern age all over the world saw us in the dock, right? The big question was, how is it that we can avoid the judgment of God? 
or the gods or whatever. But he says this modern age has transitioned and we've put God on trial. We've sat him there. Now he needs to be defended. Now we uh, question his righteousness, his justice, these types of things. And I think one of the things we have to remember uh, is, <coughs> is here, this story is serving a purpose, okay? It's showing us the beginnings of Elijah's ministry. It's a validation of that ministry. Uh, it's also an expression of that ministry of judgment. It's juxtaposed with this other possibility. And I think the only reason we find these two stories here is because how people treat Elisha is how they treat God the God who stands behind him. And so there's two choices open. As Moses said, generations ago, choose this day, life or death. Okay. Um, but sooner or later, you're going to have to recognize that if we spin this forward, judgment is part of God's character. Okay. One of the things that I take hold of when I don't understand, because we don't have the rap sheet here, do we? We can't look over the evidence for ourselves. We don't know what was going on in these young men's hearts or uh, how this fits into the rest of their life. We don't know their eternal state. In fact, to be fair, it says here that they were torn by bears, 42 of them. It probably means dead. It doesn't say dead, okay? Attacked by bears would be just as rightly as a translation, but uh, in all the things we don't know, one of the things that I often turn to is the book of Revelation in chapter 19. Now, as you may know, chapter 19 is pretty close to the end of Revelation. And it's basically uh, the last page of Jesus' judgment before he returns. In fact, what's been laid out in chapter 18 is the destruction of this religious, political, anti-God system that the author calls Babylon. Okay. But I want you to notice <coughs> in the destruction of Babylon, in the end of this judgment, which is once again intense, it's dark and disturbing, but 19 verse 1, after this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke for, from her goes up forever and ever. What I want you to recognize tonight is that great multitude that's identified there includes you. Now, there's a major difference between this great multitude and us here and now, which is right now we see in part. We know in part. Okay? We don't know experientially the fullness of God's glory and holiness. We don't have a complete understanding of all of the mysterious details that make up life that, because we're just finite. We're just limited in our understanding. But there will be a day where you proclaim with all the angels and in a second all the elders fall down and they throw their crowns before Jesus. You will see the judgment of God as it is and you will say that it is righteous and it is true. In fact, it will cause you to say hallelujah, praise be to God Part of the good news of Jesus' coming is the good news of final justice. 
and in a society that has life relatively easy, it can be easy to forget that that's good news. If you're a victim of genocide like Mirsoth Wolf, not so much, right? For him, he understands, he gets, he knows like the martyrs who are under the altar a few chapters earlier who cry out, how long, O Lord, until you bring justice for the sins committed against your people? But I think another thing we need to understand is that uh, for, <coughs> for us as Christians, we have another lens into the judgment of God that we don't always weigh. Okay? Because it's not just a bunch of insulting, rambunctious young men who deserve the judgment of God. It's not just this whore of Babylon who gets drunk on the blood of the church. It's all of us. And Tim Keller, he responds to people who say, well, I can't believe in hell, I can't believe in judgment, because I believe in a God of love. And he says, for that love to be more than just a truism, love you, bro. He says, what did it cost for your God to love you? Because for us, judgment, hell, that's what Jesus bore on our behalf. For us, the judgment that we deserve is a measurement of the evidence of God's love because he willingly and freely took that on his own shoulders in our place. Before we move on, let me just finish with the words of C.S. Lewis. In The Problem of Pain, he has a chapter on hell. And he says this. He said, I said glibly a moment ago, that I would pay any price to remove the doctrine of hell. I lied. I could not pay one thousandth part of the price that God already paid to remove the fact. And here's the real problem. So much mercy, yet still there is hell. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins? at all costs, to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help. But he's done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid that's what he does. Judgment is a difficult doctrine. Occasions like this are difficult for us to read and to swallow. But like I said, this is the self-same God who's expressed tremendous patience with Israel. In fact, as we'll see in a second, that's the real reason why this story is here. This is the self-same God who sent Jesus to deal with sins directly. It's the self-same God who says that he's not willing that any should perish, that all should come to repentance. And so he's been patient thousands of years running now with a hand open. The same same God who said to Ahaziah, yeah, you're going to die because you sinned like your father. Get your house in order and left the window open for repentance. And so, verse 25 of chapter 2, from there he went on to Mount Carmel and from there he returned to Samaria. Okay. Now, we finally get back to Moab. Remember, that's where we started. Moab's uprising, but we haven't actually done with anything with it. We haven't seen anything, but now, Elijah's retired Elisha has stepped into the limelight and we're ready for this story, okay? So chapter 3, verse 1. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. 
Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Okay, in other words, he, at least in his own palace, puts some distance between him and Baal. Okay. He doesn't destroy the cult in its entirety, as we'll see, and he also doesn't knock down the old altars of Jeroboam, the two golden calves. Okay. But comparatively, if you're going to weigh him in a scale against his father and his brother, he's a different man. Okay. Not as evil, but still a problem. Now we get back to Moab, verse 4. Now Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had delivered to the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. In other words, he lives under the thumb of Israel from the days back in Solomon's time, and so he has an annual payment that he gives on, that he passes on um, to Ahab's reign. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel, so King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all of Israel, okay? And so his treasury is about to be a lot less because he's lost one of his vassals. And so he's going to set things in order. Now remember, we now know Elijah is here. The ministry of judgment on this household is beginning. What are we expecting from this battle? Here we go. This is it. Okay. But watch what happens when we keep reading. So he marches out to battle, verse 7, when he sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. Remember, these two families (coughs) currently uh, have a marriage treaty between them. And so these families are close. And so just like his father, he contacts him and he says, I've got some business to do. Will you come? Will you aid me? Will you help? Uh, And Jehoshaphat agrees. He says, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses, just like he told Ahab. Verse 8, he said, by which way shall we march? And Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. Okay. In other words, surprise attack. And here's what you need to know about Edom. Edom is generally an enemy people of Israel, but at this point, this is another one of Israel's vassals. Okay. So, in fact, it's going to mention three kings in this battle. That's because the king of Edom, uh, uh, Jehoram's vassal, also gets involved here. He's passing through friendly territory for a surprise attack. Okay. But there's another part of this. Go all the way back to when, uh, when we get the difference between Edom, right, being Esau, and Jacob. Esau is a wild man, and he develops a wild territory. This is outright wilderness Okay. And so although it's a military, militarily good tactic, traveling all the way through Edom with an entire army ends up being a terrible mistake. Okay. And so, verse 9, the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army. Okay. Not really a good plan. What does Jehoram not do when this whole thing gets started? He doesn't inquire of the Lord. In fact, Jehoshaphat, even though last time Ahab had a plan like this, he went, yeah, I'll go with you, but first, let's check with a prophet. He doesn't do that either. And now they find themselves out in the wilderness without any water. Okay. So, verse 10, the king of Israel said, alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And actually... That's an interpretation that, me- that resonates with us. It's like, aha, here it is. Here's the promise on the household of Ahab. And then guess who shows up next? Verse 11, 
Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. The servant of Elijah is here. He's here. His name's Elisha. Verse 12, Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Okay. So what are we expecting here? Judgment. That's what we've all been waiting for. That's what began with Ahaziah. And then suddenly it's not just Ahaziah, but Jehoram. Right? And so there's this delay. And now Moab's on the scene and everything's moving. And here comes the prophet of judgment, Elisha. And what are we expecting? Judgment. But verse 13, Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. Okay. Why don't you just deal with Jezebel's prophets? That's the God you believe in anyways. Why are you calling me? But the king of Israel said to him, No, it's the Lord who has called these three kings and given them into the hand of Moab. He says, no, I'm talking with you because this is God's doing. Okay? Now, it may be here that he's portraying, once again, a polytheistic understanding and basically saying, I can't go to the gods of my parents because that's not where the problem is. Okay? It's your God who's doing this, and so how do we appease him? But it also may be that he rightly understands what's going on here. Um, but either way, once again, we're expecting Elijah to go, Bingo, see you later. Right? But notice what happens, verse 14. Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. But now bring me a musician. When the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. So he says, Normally, I wouldn't have anything to do with you and your family. But since the king of Judah is here, send for a harpist. And the harpist begins to play, and somehow that brings about the hand of the Lord on Elisha, and he begins to prophesy. Verse 16, he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed will be filled with water so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord, and he'll also give the Moabites into your hand. And so he says two things here. He says, first off, God's going to miraculously provide water. You're not going to see any rain. It's just this dry riverbed is going to run with water again. Okay? Uh, and then second, he said, also, he's going to give you the victory over Moab. Remember, that's surprising. It's not what we're expecting to happen here. But I think in what God does here in the valley, not only do we have evidence that they're going to carry in the battle tomorrow to have the courage that God's going to give them the victory, but it's also a demonstration of what God can do with Israel right now. Israel is a dry wilderness, a place of death. God can turn it to streams. He can bring about revival even here if they will have it. Okay. And so verse 19, he says, you'll attack every fortified city of Moab, every choice city. You'll fell every good tree and stop up all the springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. Okay, and so notice here, they're not going to conquer Moab to take it for themselves, but they are going to make it unlivable. That's what all these things are talking about. Verse 20, the next morning, about <coughs> the time of the offering of the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. And so all of a the sudden, the, there's just a flash flood, and the rivers run full again, enough to quench the thirst of the army. 
But notice it does something else as well. Verse 21, when all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able put on armor from the youngest to the oldest and were called out and were drawn up at the uh, border, okay? A national draft, everybody on board, okay? Verse 22, when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood, okay? And so as the sunrise comes up, this valley that's generally a desert and dry bone in this season, there's a river running through it, but the sun reflects in it like it's a river of blood. And they wrongly, uh, wrongly interpret that in verse 23. They said, this blood, this is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now Moab to the spoil. They go, oh, there must have been some sort of inner turmoil. And so they are, they've slaughtered one another, and now we can just take advantage. We'll do a little bit of cleanup. There's probably a few soldiers left, and then we'll have everything uh, in their camp to spoil. But verse 24, when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. Okay. They're unprepared to find an entirely prepared thirst-quenched army down there, and so they turn tail and run, and just as Elijah said, they begin to knock them back. Verse 25, they overthrew the cities, and on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees, till only its stones were left in Kir Hariseth, and the slingers surrounded it and attacked it. Okay, and so for most of the land, just like if a city had a really bad squatter problem, and so they just demoed all the buildings. That's what they do with the land of Moab, until there's only one stronghold left, and all the remnants of the Moabs are gathered in it. And so the slingers are uh, slinging stones at the people on the wall. And then verse 26, when the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took 700 swordmen to break through the opposite of the king of Edom, but he could not. Okay. He spots what he thinks is a weak leak in the chain, he takes the remnant of his army, only 700 left, and he tries to just force through them so that he can get out, but he can't, okay? So now he's trapped in the city. Verse 27, he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall, okay? So this is human sacrifice. It's his own son. Uh, this is a standard practice of the god Chemosh, which is the god of Moab, okay? And he's basically offering his son up for salvation, okay? Now, notice it says that he does it on the wall. That means that this is public, okay? It's not done in some secret chamber. It's out there, not just for the people of Moab, but for all of Israel to see. <clears throat> and it says, there came a great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. Now, that's not a very detailed conclusion. It's actually kind of surprising. We're expecting Moab to be completely wiped out, and then after this sacrifice, Israel turns tail and goes home, and all we're told is that there was a great wrath against Israel, okay? Now, here's what it clearly doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the sacrifice worked and then, you know, the god of Chemosh started fighting back, okay? It may mean that the soldiers were so, so stirred up by this tremendous sacrifice that they started to fight back tooth and nail. It may also mean that they were so disturbed by what they saw that they, they just leave, but either way, the thing to recognize is that there's a remnant of Moab still standing and that Israel has had a pretty tremendous victory and that the king of Israel, who's a son of Ahab, is still on the throne because God has provided a victory. Okay. 
even in this household, we find patience. We find time. And so that's where we'll pick up the story, and that's where the story will play out. We're going to be looking for this ending, the end of the household of Ahab, for quite a while, actually. So let's pray and close. Father, you've given us something greater uh, than this victory of the wilderness of Edom. You sent your son, and he bled, and our enemies, the devil and his minions, looked on that and saw that as a victory, as if humanity, humanity was left to the spoil, but it was actually that that was their defeat. And Lord, that's so much more profound because it was while we were still sinners you died for us. It was a gracious and loving act, neither deserved nor even after years of knowing you have we earned it. And we thank you for that, Lord. But I pray as well, Lord, that you would develop an, in us a healthy fear, a, a righteous fear. The Bible says uh, that uh, those who fear the Lord know everlasting joy and peace. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us to be able to look forward in longing, in solidarity with the oppressed, and say, how long, O oh Lord? I pray that you teach us to understand that the self-same God who will bring judgment on the earth is the one who freely and willingly died so that we might be just, so that you might be just and the justifier of the ungodly, Lord. I ask, Lord, that we would be willing to withhold judgment on you, to cover our mouths and not speak, to surrender and say, Lord, we don't know what to do with this, but where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. To wait and see. And we entrust to you, Lord, your justice, your goodness, your righteousness that will wipe away every tear, that will reverse every evil deed, that will set right a universe that's gone terribly wrong. And that is the good news, Lord. We thank you for all that you are tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.